when you come from a family where, you know, no safety net, you have to succeed where people don't want you to succeed, don't think you can succeed, and don't give you any benefit of the doubt, you develop an incredible ability to see what's really happening and figure out what you need to do to get around it, above it, sideways. I mean, people just say, oh, this door closed, this door closed. I'd be like, I'll take a chainsaw and make a door. You know, I will figure (laughs) it out because I never believed that those doors were all that was there. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming. From three different couches, the skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, we are very excited. Carmen Rita Wong joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the founder and CEO of Malecon Productions. She's also an author and the former host and co-creator of On the Money on CNBC. She spent years as a personal finance expert for NBC, CBS, ABC, and CNN. And she's written for publications including Glamour, Latina, Essence, and Good Housekeeping. And in a very big full circle moment, she was also Carly's boss at one point. Carmen, we are very excited to talk to you. Welcome to Skin from the Couch. Oh, so so good to be here with you guys. This is very full circle for me. My very first job right out of college was as a production assistant at CNBC for a new show called On the Money. And I was there for about two weeks when I think somebody moved jobs. And one day somebody came to me and they're like, you actually, your job title's changing. You're going to be Carmen's personal assistant. Good luck. And <laughs> good luck. Good, good luck. luck. And like, go, go see if she needs anything for lunch. Very quickly, Carmen took me under her wing. And it's amazing that we are still in touch today. And I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Those were the days, right? Oh my, oh my gosh. Of you sitting just off the camera when we were on the set. And I'd be like, Carly, ginger ale, please. <laughs> I still know how you take all your your hamburger, your water, your coffee. I got it down. God. And it's, and you know, not to, and it certainly was not divish at all because it was one of those things no. where I was working, as we'll talk, I'm like jumping ahead, but like 20 hour date, I mean, nonstop, seven days a week. So Carly literally was keeping me alive. (laughs) We're going to get into all of this, but I will say you are one of the hardest working people I have ever known. So I am very excited to share your story. So we're going to start with the question we like to ask everybody, which is skim your resume. (gasps) Oh God. How about this? I don't have a resume. Okay. Wait, do you really? I mean, not that I don't, I don't think I have one. I definitely don't have one up to date, but like you've had one at different times. Yeah, but I've been working for myself 15 years, you know, whatever many years it was. So I haven't had to pull one together in more than a decade. You become a bio. Danielle, you did a a great introduction, but I've been (laughs) so many things. I've been a magazine editor, TV host, and writer, and producer, and a faculty professor. 
author. I'm working on my fifth book. I'm an investor in women-led companies, and I am a board member for some big nonprofits, which I love that work too. So all of it. What's something that isn't in the bio and we can't Google about you that people should know? Oh, girl, you think I'm going to tell you that? (laughs) (laughs) That's why you can't Google it. (laughs) Wait, Carly, anything you know that you did not read? I think one thing that people like maybe don't know about you is like, you're very fun. I mean, maybe they're hearing it now, but like, you are very funny. Like you have a very good sense of humor and you're very good under pressure. Thank you. Yeah. I'm a freaking rock under pressure, but that doesn't mean, I mean, you may not see what's happening inside, but yeah, I'm a goofball. Can't Google that. I mean, there's some pretty funny pictures of me, still shots that people take. If you Google me, that you'll see them. <laughs> That's the one thing that going forward, it'd be nice to show people more. But as people who do know me, like Carly knows me off camera, yeah, I'm a goofball. You are. All right, we're going to get into this, which is we tend to like talk about people's childhood and, and you're like, you know, tell us how you grew up. But I think you were one of very few guests where like your childhood is really, really important to get into and kind of the family dynamic that you grew up with and how that unfolded over time. And, and you're somebody who learned a lot about your family as you got older. So I want to let you kind of share your story. I will just start off by saying you were born in New York and then what? (laughs) Yeah, I was born uptown Manhattan. Um, I was, I actually did a story on the moth, right? Which is on the podcast as well. A bit about what you allude to there about finding out only last year that I have no idea who my father is. So that's a whole thing. But I grew up with two fathers. I grew up with the father I'm named after, Papi Wong, and then I grew up with my stepfather. But I had a very, very strong mother, Dominican mother who immigrated when she was 15. And we lived in uptown Manhattan. And my brother and I, my older brother and I were the Wongs, but she eventually divorced and we moved to New Hampshire. And that was a real shock for us, a very big culture shock, because New Hampshire back in those days, 70s, 80s, had no idea what to do with us. Many places have no idea what to do with us, but especially back then. It was a big struggle for my brother and I. And, you know, the struggle continued for most of our lives when we worked and lived in white spaces, but it shaped a lot of our drive to do well, to do better. Um, And also, we kind of got the idea that we can do whatever we want to do, even though all this discrimination and people have all those problems with us, we will just do and continue to do what we want to do. As we grew up though, you know, I came back to the city as soon as possible. I think one of the things that has changed is that we kind of have your found family and your found communities, but I've always been able to navigate to bring childhood back to career. I've always been able to navigate white spaces and spaces where there was no one who looked like me because I had part of my childhood there. But I always had my ties and my love of my heart with my community because that's what I was born to. So, and multiple communities. So the Dominican community, which is a very mixed community, it's a black community, it's also white, it's colonized. And then of course the Chinese community. So it, it really was a superpower to have these kind of multiple ideas of what it is to be not just a human being, but to be American and to live here and manage everything that the country puts on you because of who you're born as. It's a lot. And I want to like give that a beat for a second. There's layered family dynamics. You've 
found out that, you know, your mom had a lot of secrets and you found this out after she unfortunately passed away. And so there's a lot of different, I imagine, emotions around that. And as you mentioned, dealing with like different sources of identity and and like what makes somebody who they are. Knowing you personally, and when we're going to talk about this, how I would describe you is like, you're very much a survivor. Job doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. Like you immediately pivot. A relationship doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. You immediately figure out how to give you and your family stability. Your family dynamic doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. You figure out how to cope. And so I'm really want to hear, like, how do you kind of reflect on that inner strength? I think one of the things is that I used to think about my strength. And unfortunately, as you get older, you really think more, a little bit more about how tired you are. My strength will never go away. My mojo's there. I'm working, I'm writing and pumping out pages. You know, I'm working on my memoir right now, which is about this discovery and my family history. And I'm so excited about it. I'm going to produce a short film. I'm in the process of doing that. I was going to ask when I was reading about your family, I'm like, when's the book coming out? Well, we're getting the book and then also doing, you know, once that gets in motion, doing a short film about it, because I think you need to see it too. Listen, it's, it's exhausting. And I think, yes, the strength is there. Nothing's going to ever take it away. It can't. It's part of my foundation. It's part of my fabric. It's part of who I am. And to your point, Carly, you've seen me, you know, yes, really have to pivot many times. And that's just what you do. But I think that that's like, that is one of the biggest strengths is to just, I saw that not modeled very well, but modeled by my mother and her family. I mean, they're a family of entrepreneurs. So you figure it out. Like, I, I just have faith in everything I've already done. I have faith that it will come together always. That's what's kept me going. Like when you say like, what is that strength? It's that as long as I'm healthy, it will work itself out. Do you think about that in terms of just having a lot of perspective or is that a skill that you have practiced and reminded yourself of? I think it's both, right? So the perspective comes first and then the skill is applied, right? So I would say this, when you come from a family where, you know, no safety net, you have to succeed where people don't want you to succeed, don't think you can succeed and don't give you any benefit of the doubt, you develop an incredible ability to see what's really happening and figure out what you need to do to get around it, above it, sideways. I mean, people just say, oh, this door closed, this door closed. I'd be like, I'll take a chainsaw and make a door. You know, I will figure (laughs) it out because I never believed that those doors were all that was there. I could see why, you know, I could see why, you know, when I went to the magazine business in my twenties, I could see why no one wanted me to not be anything but an assistant. I, I knew why I could see it. Didn't matter what was in my brain but I had to figure out a way around it because I refused to accept that where you think I should be is where I should be. I just, I just refused to accept it. So I think that's a perspective. My other perspective that's been very, very helpful is also that, yeah, sure. Things are great. I'm very blessed. I I made a lot of good decisions, but holy crap, you know, what's the worst part about it? I've waited tables. There's nothing wrong with that. I've waited tables and been very, very happy. You know, I could lose everything tomorrow. I'll just go back to waiting tables. If you have a perspective that's not so scared of loss aversion, that it's more so, I'll figure it out. As long as I can raise my daughter to the point where she gets a college education, 
by the way, that girl is then on her own. Okay. <laughs> I, I will be very happy to figure it out and take the risks that I need to take. And I've taken so many risks, but it's always with that mentality of what's the worst that can happen. Part of like the pivoting and taking the risks is sort of the unspoken thing and all of that is money. You became obsessed around the idea that we need all women, especially need to take control of their money. I want to dig into that and understand your point of view and perspective of like where that passion came from. Because traditionally we haven't, right? Because it is about equality. It's about equity. It is to me growing up and seeing, you know, yes, my, my mother worked, but what, what she did was is that her second husband, my stepfather was, you know, kind of a typical briefcase carrying executive type, right? Who brought home the bacon and then you'd write her a check once a week and you know, no shame in that. But I also saw that she was a frustrated, incredibly smart person who wanted to do more. And so I just saw that inequality in general boiled down a lot to not just about earning money, but how women are taught to not have anything to do with it. You know, yes, household budgets. We all know that women are, you know, they take care of buying things like groceries and sheets and all that stuff. You know, BS. What I saw in my house was that. That was what my mother was in charge of. But my dad was in charge of, you know, there he was with the Wall Street Journal, you know, opening it up every, every day to look at stock prices. He was in charge of managing that. And what I saw was that that should not be gender-based. That power dynamic should not exist. Why? If I'm more interested, me, Carmen, as a little kid, I'm more interested in the business papers than I am in Betty Crocker. Why is that bad? And why shouldn't more women be encouraged to do that? So in order for us to have independence, to have equity, it's not so much just about earning money. It's about knowing where the money is going and being a part of it. Look, I've talked to so many women over the years, Carly, you know this, who are just like, oh, I just don't like it. Fine. Do what you're really great at, but please don't be ignorant about where the money is and where it's going. So the show that I worked with you on was called On the Money. It was a personal finance show. The majority of the show was a lot of call-ins around people calling with with their personal issues and you would give them advice. And like, I remember sitting in the wings and literally writing down notes. You know, if I ever had a 401k, this is how I should think about it because this is what you said. When we started the skim, personally, Danielle and I went into credit card debt. We paid ourselves like a very minimal stipend. And I remember I emailed you and I was like, I have no idea how to manage my own money. Can you meet me for coffee? You like literally wrote out all the things I need to think about. What is the most common mistake you see women in particular make approaching these conversations? And I say that from the vantage point, eight years later from when I sat down with you, we've become obsessed with women and finances at the skim. We really dug into what we call skim money and, and very much in line with exactly what you're talking about. So I'm curious from, from your vantage point, what is the biggest mistake you see women making with money? Not thinking it's a power in their life, mm-hmm. not owning it, not owning that power, right? So not owning that power as a woman. I find it incredible to understand how many women I've spoken to who just let someone else take care of it completely or hand over everything. There's no idea of of ownership. Why don't we feel like, even if we earn the money, why don't we feel like it's ours? 
if we have the money, let's say you get out of school and somehow somebody in the family, unfortunately, passes away and you have money. It's like, how do I, why don't I know how to do that? But I don't want to put it actually so much on women because I have to tell you that the real reality of it is, and it's kind of like how we're seeing right now in this time with Black Lives Matter. There is a system in place that keeps us down. Women, all women, and of course, particularly black women and women of color. But there is a system in place that says we don't belong on the trading floor. We don't belong in an E-Trade account or we don't belong in taking care of money. There's a really insidious system. And one of the things, Carly, is like working in that field for so long, and part of the reason why I just couldn't stand it to a certain point is, is that I saw all the systems that were in place that were keeping women and black and people of color out of the money world. And I was tired. Because you can't sit there. I can't sit there and tell you, stop having your freaking toast, your avocado toast and crap. I couldn't do it. No, because there's a bigger system around us that's keeping us from taking control of all of this. And I feel like, you know, in the, the personal finance space and in the work that you guys do, it's like, if you shine a light on the fact that there is so much trouble in the finance space when it comes to us taking care of our money. So for example, not only do we earn less, right? But we're gonna get higher interest rates on, on loans. You're gonna get, for a long time, insurances would, insurance, like car insurance would punish you, make you pay more if you're a female driver. All, like, all of this craziness. Some of it's being exposed, but you have to believe that those of you who are in their 20s, for example, you're coming into a space that just started putting these things into place. I was born and I ain't even that old yet. I don't, I don't have my AARP card, okay? I'm not that old. <laughs> and I was born at a time when women could not have a credit card or bank account on their own, okay? So crazy. So this is a very short period of time that we as women have been able to be in charge of our financial lives. Short as much as we talk about this problem, I really don't think I've ever thought about how short an amount of time it is that we've actually had this problem because it wasn't something that we could have taken control over for, I mean, ourselves and the people listening, right? I agree with so much of what you're saying. And then as I think about it, I'm like, it almost makes me just want to throw my hands up in the air even more. I don't love diving into my personal finances, but I do it. But two, there's so much stacked against me being able to successfully kind of navigate these things. It's like the systems are made up to make it harder. And I'm a college-educated white woman with my own business. Where should people start? Danielle, you are not allowed to throw up your hands. You are not allowed because it's not just about you. That's a thing in the brown and black community that I have, that you really see is that you realize because we have to be held up as representatives for each other, there is no ability for us to kind of just be like, oh, it's just about me. Like I can't deal, it's just about me. I want you and all women to realize it's not just about you. This is an issue that you taking care of it and you being that boss of your own situation is a powerful feminist stance that's gonna change the system. 
And it's a lot. And I understand people get tired. Girl, I am so tired. Remember I mentioned at the beginning of this, like how exhausted I, but you just have to keep going. You have to keep at it because once you understand the power in it, which is bigger than any individual, that is incredible fuel for you to get going. We have this money culture that tells you, you know, why pay attention? You don't need to pay attention to this. Women should, you shouldn't be doing this. This is not for you. Yes, it is. That's your money. Danielle, this is your money. You earned it. You worked for it. It's yours. It's yours to deal with. And it's one of those things that you have to, and instead of seeing it as a chore, and this is when Carly goes back to your question. It's like, what's the mistake you're making? The mistake is making is thinking that it's like mopping the floor. Because women have been programmed that when it comes to money, it's about household budgets. It's also seen as a chore. This is not a chore. This is about building, protecting your life, your family, your future kids, your future family. It is absolutely a foundation of yourself going forward. Over the last three plus years, we've been in a different waves of moments of reckoning. Started with the Me Too movement, which opened the conversation around equity in the workplace and and protection, gender equity and and gender protection. We obviously are in such a unique moment right now, exposing racial inequities and how systemic they are. When you think about the things that you have experienced or have seen or witnessed in, in your career, having worked for many people and now having worked for yourself for many years, what is your advice around how to handle the things that you see that are wrong and how to speak up? Let's start with like protecting yourself and then defending others. Oh, we are in a much different time now. I mean, it's changed in a matter of weeks, even though I still, you know, see on Twitter and Facebook, like, there's still people who refuse to, to see this as a problem, but of course it is. Carly, do you remember, I don't know if you were in the meeting that this is what, 2008, 2009, they wanted to sauce up the show and they wanted me to wear a sombrero. I was and, no and have maracas. That's not I was not in that's that meeting. how they said that. But and oh they my God. said, you know, and then you could shake it and then it could be like, you know, bring your Spanish to it. <gasps> bring your, you know, why don't you like throw in Spanish words and <sighs> oh my God, Carmen. <laughs> and one of the ways that I dealt with that, and I give you a story as opposed to direct advice, because I want you to hear how I dealt with it. One of the ways that you sometimes, unfortunately, have to deal with these things is I dealt with it and I survived by being funny. I said to them in response, I said, I am not your Latin monkey. But I said it with a wink. And they, ha, 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 But inside, I was like, you mother... Yeah. Okay. And, and by the way, in the same meeting, they wanted to do a fortune cookie <gasps> graphic that would crack open with my advice of the day and Chinese chimes. And we're talking 2008, 2009. I wanted to vomit and I was so angry. That's a macroaggression, but I've had microaggressions as as many, especially women have and, and women of color, but I've dealt with it in the past by speaking up in a way that kept my agenda going. And unfortunately, I'm not always proud of that, but I never compromised to the point where you were not clear that I was not happy with what you were saying. Hearing you say that, I was 
22 when we worked together. And I was not in that meeting that I, or at least I don't recall being in that meeting. But I remember so many times, you know, you literally worked 18 hour days. And so that we shot a show at night and there was a morning call every morning, like 9 a.m. I was on the Today Show in the morning. Yeah. And you had already been on TV. So there'd be a call in where we would talk about the lineup of the day or, or whatever. And when I think about that, what do I hear is I hear your voice constantly saying, I'm uncomfortable with blank. Guys, I'm not that comfortable with this choice. Or I can we just pause? Because I'm not that comfortable. And I just like, I hear that in my head. And I don't think I ever appreciated what you saying that actually meant or could have been referencing. Yeah. Hence the exhaustion, because <laughs> it's like a constant fight. You know, uh, the erasure of me as a human being and a person as a full person was constant. I did manage it by, of course, tempering, you know, my rejection and or making a joke of it, or if it was that ridiculous, like wearing a sombrero. And I also had a toddler at home and I was the breadwinner. So these are the ways that career-wise before this moment, some of us have had to navigate them very deftly. But it also meant, for example, that, you know, I couldn't get promoted when I was at Money Magazine because, again, they would not have somebody of color be on the editorial side. So I had to leave, go to graduate school, get 50 grand in debt and come back. And the only reason that I got a great job title and got paid well was because they hired a high level black editor from a mandate from the top that the magazine was all white. And she got me that job, helped me with my first book deal, and is the godmother to my daughter. She changed my life. You know, people talk about mentors and sponsors and all that stuff. You know, how many talented, wonderful people have not had the opportunity that I had because my timing was there? Now, I did go and get that graduate degree, yes, and go into debt, which was a huge risk which is like starting a business, right? Like, oh, I'm going to go get a graduate. I'm going to go 50 grand in debt just to... But if she had not been there, would I have been on TV? You have to do these things to manage all of the roadblocks ahead of you. I just think and hope that we're at a point where it's not that hard. Let's talk about the point that we're at now. And I want to start off by saying your daughter that you reference is now a teenager. How are you teaching her about money and how it is different for her or will be different as a young woman compared to the guys that she's growing up with? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I never contextualize it. Never contextualize in the point of view of the oppressor. That's a bit of advice for you. So I don't contextualize anything under the umbrella of men or patron. Never. It doesn't even enter the conversation. I treat her as a full human being who needs to know her ish, right? So I'll give you an example. So she's 13. So for her 13th birthday, which of course she got checks and money and envelopes and that sort of thing, God bless her. That didn't happen for me. So it's a whole <laughs> new generation. I took her to the bank with me. I recommend that every parent do this, especially with a daughter, daughter, son, but especially with a daughter, go to the bank and meet with a banker and sit down and open that account with them. So she has the debit card. Now I say to her, okay, so now you have your money. So when you want things like music, movies, you know, entertainment, all that stuff, now you have money to pay for it. So just this week, 
Can I tell you, this girl, she Snapchats me and she's like, I wanted to watch Fantasy Island or whatever. It's only, <laughs> only $5.99, you know, can I get it? And I go, yeah, with your money. <laughs> and let me tell you, this child was like, what? Why? Why do I have to pay for it? And I was like, because that's what your money is for. The only way to learn about money is to feel the pain of spending what you have. Yeah. Because she's never going to learn, even though she's growing up completely differently than I ever did or could have imagined, right? She's comfortable. But the only way she's going to learn is if I make her feel that pain of spending the $5.99. You talked a little bit before a few minutes ago about the editor that changed your life. Who are your mentors? Who do you go to for advice? Well, for advice, I'd say I have close friends. I have a friend circle, which is completely and very much so purposefully non-transactional. In terms of mentors, sponsors, that sort of thing, and which by the way, I kind of cringe at, I'm much more of a creative than I am corporate. And even though I know my money and know my business, like nobody's business, I just, it, it all corporate, it all cringes me. But I understand that that's very useful. You do need those people in your life. And sometimes all you need is one. I had one and she's been the best. Like I said, she's my kid's godmother. So she's been the best. But I think, and when it comes to your friendships, I want to encourage people, you know, this, we're talking about careers, but I want to encourage women because I know that ambitious women tend to have relationships that are too transactional, too much based on what can you do for me? It can break your heart sometimes. Because let's say you lose a job and all of a sudden you lose friends. Yeah. You lose a show, you lose friends. Or you get divorced like I did, you lose friends. You go into another line of work, you lose friends. You need people in your life who are there whether you're up or down professionally. It's so, so, so important. And that's a big kind of byproduct of my involvement in the nonprofit sector so I encourage young women, if we're talking about career, I encourage you so much to volunteer your time, always. I was raised with volunteering. This was really part of something I was raised with. Um, volunteering, you know, at the church when I was a teenager and all that stuff, it's, it's in me. Um, and it has had some of the great relationships, friendships that I've had in my life have come through that. And they're, no matter, they're there no matter what happens professionally. You've talked a lot about being tired and you've talked a lot about volunteering now and all the different projects that you've done. How do you protect yourself? I think one of the things that like has come up a lot on the show is a lot of ambitious people like want to do a lot of things. And at the end of the day, like you can't do everything if you don't take care of yourself. So like, what are the boundaries you put into place for yourself? Well, I will say this. When you are younger, you know, it's a little easier to go without more boundaries, right? But I think as you have a family and as you advance and all this stuff, like you really have to have those boundaries. Carly, you remember in TV, it was kind of like, how could you not, you know, go home for three hours and try to sleep for two and then go on the show the next morning? Like you had to do everything that was thrown at you. That was like boundaryless. So when I was there, I had to say to the executive producer, listen, I need to see my child. I need to not be on my phone with my child. I said, from 6 to 8 p.m., I'm not going to look at my phone. And that was very important. So you have to decide what are those things that are very important for you and protect those things. 
The other thing is that sometimes I see people, and this happens a lot, taking jobs that don't pay or don't pay well. We get that question all the time from people starting out. You know, do I take the job in the industry I want to be in, even though it won't cover my bills? Or do I take a job in an industry I don't want to be in because I can make more money? That I would say you can take a job in an industry you want to be in as long as they pay you. Fight for to get paid as much as you are worth. Make sure you're getting paid as much as the guy who has the same title as you. That you can fight for. And if, even if still that's not enough and you really just love what you're doing, then you're going to have to make up from it for it some other way. What I see too often is, especially in media or the creative fields is, you know, oh, well, I'm doing this for exposure or, oh, I'm going to, this is all they pay. Every single thing that you put out there as energy has value. I would rather focus on building a, a business and a portfolio and that sort of thing than taking a job that's going to pay me crap. So I was approached recently to do a hosting gig for a bank surprise um, <laughs> for high net worth Latina surprise. And not that it's a bad project, but you know, I initially was approached and I was like, okay, well, what's the budget? Girls, it was ridiculously stupid. I can't even say it. So I was like, no, thank you, right? Then they come back at me with multiples more. But guess what? It was too late because now my plate is full. Carly, when I, that show ended, I doubled my income the year I left that show. Working for myself, and the biggest thing I did was they people would come back at me. And granted, I had I had like no money. I was supporting my ex husband, my child. I I mean, they didn't even pay me well for the show anyway. But I fought to get paid. So someone would approach me and say, "Oh well, I have this bank who wants to do blank, and it pays like a dollar a word." And I would be like, "Well, middle finger to you." Even though I had no money in the bank, it didn't matter. I knew what I was worth. And guess what? They always came back. And I'd be like, this is how much I want. So I know it doesn't fit everyone's personality. I know not everybody can do something like this, right? But I want people, especially women, I want women to really dig in there and understand that you have value and no knock on doing some stuff for free to get you to meet a certain person that you need to meet or do, you know, write scripts on spec, which I have done, right? No knock on any of that business. Just always remember to go back and ask for more and turn down the stuff that's not going to help you. You don't have to do it. I love this advice. I think that's a great transition right now to our final segment, the lightning round. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Are you ready? Yes. This is the most important question I'm going to ask you all day. Was I the best assistant you've ever had? Girl, you were the best. (laughs) Queen. Queen assistant. We're done. That's all we needed to talk Um, about. What's the show you've been binge watching lately? Oh my gosh. I watched The Great on Hulu. I just started Upload on Amazon. I'm re-watching Watchmen, which by the way, oh, yeah. called all of this and is freaking brilliant. I loved Watchmen. I, I mean, yeah. beyond brilliant. What's your greatest advice? Tequila. <laughs> Do you have a hidden talent? Oh my God. <laughs> This question is embarrassing. What's um, your hidden talent? I don't know. I have, lo- I guess, lots. I just don't. Yeah, I don't know. Like what? 
I am a great cook. I'm a great cook. Okay. Um, I am a little actor. I am quite the stage actor. Who's someone we should have on this show? Oh my gosh, there's so many. <gasps> I didn't know I was going to get hit with this question. Oh my gosh, I have a list of incredible people who should be on your show. Okay, can I send you later? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When is the last time you negotiated for yourself? Oh, shoot. Is there a day that I don't? Or like, what did you last negotiate? Uh, just before this interview, literally. Just before this interview, I negotiated a certain board position, which will be public later, and had to hel- hold them accountable as well. Do you have a pump-up song? Oh, yes. I have a <laughs> pump-up playlist. Oh, can you share I that? I have a pump-up playlist. Will you share that? I want to see it. I want to know what's on it. You want to know what's on? Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll send you screenshots. Thank you. It's a, it's a mix of reggaeton and hip-hop and all of that stuff. I love it. Carmen, thank you so much. It is such a pleasure and honor to have you on this show, but thank you also for everything. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Carly. I love seeing you guys grow into this massive, incredible, successful company and so proud to just have known you from the beginning. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name is Marguerite Adzik, and I'm the founder and CEO of Addison Bay, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Addison Bay is a multi-brand activewear company curating the best assortment of fashion-forward activewear, along with designing and producing our own line of active fashion. As a busy mom on the go, I wanted to develop a one-stop space where activewear went beyond just the time spent at the gym and where fashion-forward didn't mean less function. Like many other retailers, we've seen a decrease in sales due to the uncertainty that consumers are feeling right now. We're in our second year of business, so seeing a significant decrease in sales while being in our current cash position has affected us quite a bit. On a personal note, our day-to-day has been completely transformed. I've decided to keep all of my employees hired full-time while I personally pick and pack all orders at ABHQ with my husband to keep things moving here. My team is very scrappy and I'm so proud of our efforts. And at home, keeping up with a toddler and being six months pregnant is exhausting and amazing at the same time. It's evident that COVID-19 has not only impacted my business, but it's also affected my life as a business owner and a working mother. Keeping morale high can actually be very difficult, especially when I'm personally trying to stay positive and optimistic, but I know how important it is to be the strong backbone of the company. We have the mentality that this is a marathon, it's not a sprint, we're going to stay focused on the ultimate plan, and that's really on me to remind my team of that. The Skins community can help us by shopping at Addison Bay for their activewear and comfortable clothes taking our Instagram live workouts, liking or sharing our posts, telling their friends about AB, everything matters and it truly does add up. We realize that buying clothes right now may not be the necessity, but we're also focused on building our community to help our consumer feel included. And I really think that we will make it to the other side of this with the help of the Skim community. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.